We have a new soundboard this morning, so uh, our regular teaching pastor, Kevin, knew better and took this morning off. It was, uh, it's either that or uh, today, and he thought the natural thing would be to take the day off and have the Irish guy, or the Italian guy uh, preach the sermon today. Either one. Uh, happy St. Patrick's Day. If you have a Bible this morning, if you would turn to Mark chapter number 10. While you're turning to Mark chapter 10, uh, at Grace Road, one of our distinctives Uh, Because we believe the gospel is that we have a very high view of God, uh, that is to say he's the savior, he's the redeemer, he's the reconciler, a very high view of God and a very low view of man. And what we mean by that is we don't think that man is the answer, we don't think that uh, man is maybe three pragmatic steps away from fixing ourselves, we don't think you can fix you. We think that we need a redeemer. We need a savior to step in and save the day. So we have a very high view of God and a very low view. What we're going to do is we're going to look at a passage of scripture uh, where somebody approaches Jesus really with an elevated view of himself. He thinks that he has it going on. He thinks he has it all together, that he's a good guy. And we're going to see how Jesus interacts with this person. And I think this morning we'll see a lot of ourselves, whether we like it or not, in this guy. Mark chapter number 10, beginning with the 17th verse. It says, and as he was setting out on his journey, speaking of Jesus, uh, in this journey again is Jesus' journey to Jerusalem where he'll ultimately give his life as a ransom for all, where he'll go lay down his life as a payment for sin. He's setting out on his journey. It says that a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now it says a man ran up. Uh, This is Mark's account. This passage shows up that he's not, uh, we know more about him than simply he's just a man. Uh, Matthew, for example, Matthew chapter 19 talks about this man and gives the same story. And we find out in that passage that this man is rich, he's young, and he's a ruler. So he's got it going on. He's the rich young ruler who is approaching uh, Jesus. Now, <coughs> because it says that he's young, we know that he's not a ruler of the synagogue. That was something that uh, older people uh, held that position. So he's more of uh, a cultural icon. He's, he's wealthy. He's famous. Uh, everybody uh, likes him and, and, and looks at him. Uh, basically, in our day, he'd be a cultural icon. This this is Justin Timberlake, uh, maybe just a little bit more moral or something, but um, he's just got it going on. People like him. He's famous. He's rich. Uh, so this guy comes up to Jesus, and he asks this question, probably would be really excited if somebody ran up to us and asked us. He says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus is going to answer his question he, uh, in verse number 18. And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. So Jesus says to this guy who comes up to him and says, hey, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus answers his question. He says, well, if you're looking for what you need to do, and that was the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, if you're looking for what you need to do 
to inherit eternal life, then you need to keep the commandments. And Jesus rattles off six commandments to this rich young ruler, and he says, you need to do this. And he rattles off six commandments, and he says, you need to keep the law. If you want to inherit eternal life, what you have to do is keep the law of God perfectly. And that's what Jesus presents to this rich young ruler. Now, I, his answer kind of takes us back a little bit. Jesus holds the, the perfect law of God and says, if you want to uh, inherit eternal life, you need to keep the law perfectly. And in verse number 20, this is the man's reaction. And he said to him, teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. Really? You want to go with that, okay? Uh, you're looking at Jesus and you're saying, yep, honor my father and mother. I've, I've always done that. I've kept that from my youth. Never, never stolen, never lied, uh, never committed adultery, which Jesus has established that even if you look at it, it's, it's equal with adultery. And he says, yep, I've never done those things. So, I mean, what we know about him, if, if he could say that, and feel like there's a shred of truth to that, then this guy must have grown up in a good Christian family, if you will, uh, with a lot of morals. Maybe at a young age, he was uh, taught the Old Testament scriptures. He grew up with learning good character, good morality, uh, had it together, and he could not even think of a time where he committed a, a gross neon sin uh, where he, you know, cheated on his wife because we do know that he's married. Uh, he says, no, I, I've kept these things. I've kept the commandments from my youth. So he <coughs> feels like he's done a good job. So if he's coming up to Jesus and saying to Jesus, hey, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And he thinks he's kept the commandments, then what's he asking? He asks is that maybe he thought, hey, I've done 99% of what I need to do. Is there just one more thing I need to add to my uh, to-do list, to, to, to my behavioral modifications? What else? Is there just one more thing? And I think it's, that's what he's looking at uh, because of how Jesus responds to him in the next verse. But uh, hey, I've, I've done a good job. I'm killing it. I'm a good husband. I'm moral. I treat people fair. I have good behavior, good character. I've done a good job. Jesus, is there any other little thing that I need to switch up? Uh, we see here clearly that he had a very high view of himself, that his behavior had earned his acceptance with God. So we know that he believes in religion. He's trusting in religion. And if you're new here, Christi I need to be clear here, Christianity is not religion. The two are very, very different. The, the, again, the motto, the belief system of religion is, I do these things, and then if I do these things, I'm accepted by God. If I'm a good person, if I keep the rules, if I uh, am a good moral person, if I do these things, I go to church, I do these things, then God will accept me, love me, and bless me. I do these things, and then God blesses me. That's what religion is. And, and we know that that's what he believes simply by the fact that he comes up to Jesus and says, hey, what do I need to do? Religion says, what do I do to, uh, to earn God's favor, God's acceptance, God's love, God's eternal life? And Jesus teaches 
throughout the scriptures violently against that. That Christianity is not what you do to earn God's acceptance. Christianity is all about what God did so that you can be accepted. Uh, they're radically different. So gospel-centered Christianity believes it's about what Jesus did on the cross, not about what we do to get God's acceptance and God's eternal life. But this man believes in religion, and Jesus is going to show that your performance can never earn God's favor. That your performance, your good behavior is never going to earn God's acceptance and gets you into eternal life. <clears throat> and he's going to do that in verse number 21. He's going to prove to this guy that his performance isn't good enough. Verse number 21, and Jesus, looking at him, loved him. So you understand the spirit in which Jesus is coming to him. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing. Now, I highly doubt the guy lacked one thing, but I think that's just a play on where this guy was coming from as far as, hey, what, is there any other thing I need? To one thing. Go, sell all that you have, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. So Jesus says, listen, if you want to perform well, if it's about what you do to, an, to earn God's acceptance, yeah, you need to do one more thing. Go sell everything that you have and give that to the poor. And he says, then you'll inherit eternal life. Now I can see on some of your faces, you're starting to get uncomfortable. Listen, I'm telling you right now, we're not turning this into a money sermon, so don't, don't get worried. Some of you are like, why did we come on Give It All Sunday? We should have skipped. <laughs> Look, Jesus isn't making a blanket rebuke that it's wrong to have money in possessions. We know throughout the scriptures that there are godly men that had a lot of money. Abraham had, we know that uh, Joseph was second in command from Pharaoh, so you know that he was straight balling. Like he had a ton of stuff. Job had servants, flocks, oxen, sheep. Uh, so we know throughout the scriptures that there were people who were rich that had money, but they were still godly. So Jesus isn't saying, hey, if <coughs> you're going to be a Christian, if you're going to follow me, you can't own anything. You have to sell all and give all to the poor. That's not what he's saying. What he is doing is revealing to this individual, you do not keep the commandments, and I'll show you why. And what he's going to do is he's going to give him an opportunity to keep the first commandment that says put God first always, and the tenth commandment that says don't uh, covet. And he says, hey, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go and sell everything you have and give to the poor, knowing that this will reveal this guy's weakness to keep the law. This is what, Jesus wasn't giving him more religion. He wasn't saying, hey, this is what you need to do to inherit eternal life and giving him more things to do. Jesus was simply revealing where this guy's heart was. And we know by the response where it was because he fails the test. Jesus says, go, <coughs> one thing you lack, go and sell everything you have, give to the poor. In verse number 22, disheartened by the saying, this rich young ruler went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. So he fails the test, showing that he didn't simply own possessions. His possessions owned him. They were his God. 
Because I want you to imagine right now, you walk up to Jesus, the Messiah, the creator of the universe. You walk up to him and say, hey, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And he gives you something to do that you tangibly could do if you were really interested in eternal life, that you would do that thing. You would sell those possessions and follow Jesus, but he doesn't do that which just shows you that his question to Jesus about what must I do to inherit eternal life was not a question of that he was really looking for an answer. He was really just looking for, hey, you're doing a great job. Keep up the good work. I mean, you keep the commandments. You're an asset. You bring a lot to the table. He was looking for Jesus to affirm his good behavior, his good performance. He was not looking for Jesus to answer that question. He didn't approach Jesus with a heart to say, hey, whatever (coughs) needs to happen for me to inherit eternal life, what is it? He came at Jesus with an elevated view of himself, expecting Jesus to say, you're a varsity Christian, you're doing a great job. He had a very inflated view of his own performance. And honestly, if if we look at our own hearts, we tend to have that with ourselves as well. Whether you're a Christian or not, most of us believe we're not that bad of a person. I mean, I know that the Bible says that I'm a sinner, I get that, but I can also look at other people and realize I'm not like that guy, and I would never do that And we tend to think that we're an asset. We have it together. We go to church. We we keep the rules to the best of our ability. And, you know, when we fail, when we we miss the mark, uh, that happens. But but Jesus and God are okay with that because they they know, like, my sins are real small compared with other people. And people's sins crystal clear. I mean, I know when I'm sinned against. but we tend, not to see other, or we, we tend not to see our own sin that well. And so uh, somebody wrongs us and we'll go gossip and slander that person and call a friend and say, you wouldn't believe what this person did. And, and, and we'll gossip and we'll slander and we won't think that that at all is a sin. But, we'll, but that person, what they did to me, that was a sin. So we have this view of ourselves that we, we have it going on. We're not as bad as that guy. And even if we have a dark past, <coughs> we tend to uh, or say, yeah, I know I did that, but at least I didn't do this other thing. I mean, I never like did heroin. Or like we, we always take, I never murdered anybody. We always take this extreme uh, sin and say, I didn't do that. So I'm not that bad. I was uh, watching Wreck-It Ralph with my, uh, my kids, which if if you've never seen Wreck-It Ralph, true story, it is a theological masterpiece. Uh, I'm being serious. I know Kevin reads Tim Keller and C.S. Lewis and quotes like real smart things. I watch Wreck-It Ralph, and that's where I get my illustrations from. So Ralph is a video game character. It's a cartoon that Disney put out, and uh, he's the bad guy. His job is to wreck this building, and then Felix, who's the good guy, comes. The game is Felix coming, and he has to put the building back together that Ralph is wrecking. So Ralph's the bad guy, but here's the problem. He doesn't want to be a bad guy. He doesn't like being the bad guy. He, he looks at himself and says, hey, I'm, I'm good. I, uh, 
everybody treats me bad, but I'm, I'm <coughs> not that bad of a guy. So in the beginning of the movie, Ralph goes to a bad guy, self-help video game bad guys. And if you grew up playing video games, at this point you're geeking out because you recognize all the, uh, the different bad guys. But uh, one of the guys in there, his name is uh, Zangief, and he's explaining how uh, he struggles sometimes. He used to struggle with being a bad guy, but then he had to come to terms with the fact that even though he crushes men's skulls in his video game, even though he's the bad guy in the video game, he's not that bad of a guy. He's actually a good guy. And that's his mentality. And honestly, right there is where most of us lie. We think, yes, I understand that the Bible says I'm a sinner. I understand that uh, I'm uh, utterly depraved and unable to save myself. But at the end of the day, I'm not that bad of a guy. Uh, I keep the rules. I have good behavior. I love my wife. I love my spouse. Uh, I'm a good parent. I provide for my family. I pay my taxes. I'm not that bad of a guy. And we have this elevated view of ourselves that we're not that sinful. And that is an error in our heart, and it's an error in our culture. And when we fail to understand our depravity, when we, when we think we're part of the solution, that we have it going on, that I'm, I'm, I'm a real asset to, to God, and he, he sees my good behavior, and he just looks down from heaven and affirms that I got it going on. I'm doing a good job. When we have that view, that elevated view of ourselves, we minimize what Christ did for us on the cross. We strip it of its glory. We make much of ourselves, and we diminish what God has accomplished. So why do we have this, this low view of man? Because we acknowledge we are asked to save ourselves. We are grossly, grossly poor performers. And that may sound like bad news, but the story doesn't end there. It gets really good. But we have to understand that <clears throat> when the Bible calls us bad, that we're more sinful than we can imagine. And this guy, the, the, the rich young ruler, he missed that. Verse number 23, it says, And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, as this guy is walking away, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. So out of love for this rich young ruler, I see Jesus pleading with him, hey, uh, <coughs> uh, don't walk away. Don't, d don't uh, hold on to those possessions. Sell them. Follow me. Un understand that your performance, your, your cannot save you. Understand that. And look to me as your savior. Look to me as your rescuer. And this guy walks away and says, no. And he, and he walks away from eternal life. He refuses it. Now, the disciples are present for this whole exchange. So the disciples are sitting there watching this guy, this morally altogether good guy who keeps the commandments. Everybody respects this guy. They know the family he comes from. Everybody thinks this guy's got it going on. He comes up to Jesus and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? All the disciples are expecting Jesus to give them a fist bump and say, keep up the good work, boy." Jesus sends, them away. He sends him away, and this just leaves the disciples jacked up. Like, 
<coughs> if he can't be saved, they don't know what to do. Verse number 24, and the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is <coughs> to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter into the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And we're all rich. Now, church people have done crazy, crazy things with this verse right now. Okay? And why is that? Because let's face it, church people be crazy. Uh, so <laughs> some say that the word camel in the Greek was really the word rope. So what Jesus was saying is it's like trying to get a rope through the eye of a needle. But if you really, really try, you can do it. Other people who are uh, just as humorous say, well, the, the eye of a needle, Jesus wasn't talking about the literal eye of a needle. Uh, back in Jesus' day, there was these big walls, and there was gates going through the walls, but they were real small. It was difficult to, for a camel to get through these, these little openings, these little gates, and they called those gates the eye of the needle. So it was difficult to get your camel with all the possessions through this eye of a needle, through this, this gate. But if, you know, if the camel went on a 10-day juice fast and, you know, put on spanks and sucked it all in and you pushed the camel through, you could get, it was difficult, but it wasn't impossible. Uh, I think what Jesus is talking about here, because I'm simple, is that easier for a camel a literal camel, like this guy, to go through the eye of a needle. And this is a tapestry needle. This is the biggest one I could find. Uh, and I still think, even though this is a big one, that it would be a tough sell for the camel to get through the eye of a needle. And <clears throat> the reason why I think that that's what Jesus is talking about, say literal camel going through the eye of a needle, it's just a metaphor. It's like when we say, when pigs fly. Like, it's not going to happen. What Jesus is acknowledging is the absolute, utter impossibility that we can save ourselves. He is saying, it is easier for this guy to go through the eye of a little needle than for man to redeem and save themselves, to keep the law of God and, and, and earn God's performance. That is what Jesus is saying. Verse uh, 26, and they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? I mean, because if uh, this guy is pushed away, if this guy can't be saved, and it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for one of us to get saved, then none of us can be saved then, huh? No one? None of us can be saved? That's what the disciples are asking. It's a legitimate question. Verse number 27, Jesus looked at them and said, with man, it is impossible. Left up to ourselves, it is absolutely impossible to save ourselves. With man, it is more likely for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for us to save ourselves. But then he says, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. 
Jesus is proclaiming that salvation is a complete miracle of God and God alone. That left up to ourselves, it is an absolute, utter impossibility, but God and God alone can perform this miracle. That it is impossible, but not impossible with God. That he can perform the miracle. That we are unable with our behavior to redeem ourselves. This is why we have that low view of man. That religion, the the idea that I can do these things and God will look down on me and affirm my good behavior is a lie. It's an overestimation of ourselves. That he can look at us and that we're just going to do a few things because on our best day, I'm not talking we commit that sin that we know is really bad and it was glaring and we wish we didn't do that. You know, the guilt that we feel on that day. I'm saying on our very best day, when we're going around and we just did everything right and we just look back on our day and we say, man, I killed it today. I did this, I did this, bought my wife flowers and I was witness to a coworker. I read my Bible, I prayed. I was the man, I was the woman today. I killed it on our best day. That is nowhere close to being acceptable enough to God to earn his favor. That on our best day, we are not killing it. That our righteousness is as filthy rags. That's what we have to understand about ourselves. Look with me in Romans chapter 8. This is, again, salvation is a work of God, not man, that we are not able to do anything to earn God's favor. There is therefore now Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free. Who set you free? You didn't set yourself free. You were passive at salvation. The spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done. Who who did it? For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. That is to say, we have the law, the Ten Commandments. And if we keep that perfectly, if we can keep the law perfectly, then we can inherit eternal life. But none of us can. So the law is weakened by the flesh. We're not going to keep the law perfectly. So what God did was keep the law perfectly on our behalf in Jesus Christ. He fulfilled the righteous requirements of the law. And that's what that passage is saying, that God did what we could, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Romans is saying, Romans 8 is saying that God did the work, that our salvation, we brought nothing to the table. We didn't contribute 90%, and then he did the final 10%. We didn't contribute 10%, and he contributed the final 90%. We brought nothing to the table. The, uh, the quote goes, but the sin that made it necessary. That's our contribution to salvation. We provide the sinner and the sin that makes our rescue and salvation necessary. And that Jesus does the rest. And that's great news because 
When we have this elevated view of ourselves that we think we contribute, we're doing a good job, we're killing it, it affects our worship. Because we, we're not going to make much of Jesus when I think that I did 60% of this work. We're not going to make much of Jesus if I think I did 30%. But when we understand that I was hopeless and absolutely in need of rescue and that Jesus Christ stepped in and saved the day, that he saved me, he sanctified me, he sustains me, not based on my performance, not based on my good days or my bad days, but completely by his grace and mercy, now I worship Now I'm poured out for him because I understand that he did it all, that I did nothing, and I make much of him, and I exalt him, and I boast, not in my own performance, but I boast in the cross, because I know that Jesus did this, that I was hopelessly in a desperate condition, and Christ paid the way for me. He did it all, and that causes me to worship. So over and over again in the scriptures, we see man is the problem, Christ is the solution. That <clears throat> it's not a 50-50 partnership. And when we understand that, we have no legitimate reason to boast. We don't think that we're better than non-believers or non-Christians. We don't think we're better than the Christians we know that are, are struggling with a particular sin. We acknowledge that apart from Jesus Christ, I'm nothing. That I don't get to come up to Jesus and say, what do I need to do to inherit eternal? Oh, keep the commandments? I do. And that he says, you know what? You're right. You're doing a great job. Just keep up the good work. That that doesn't happen. Are as filthy rags, and he is the Savior. He's the, the glorious one who paid the cost for me. That, like Romans said, that he came in the flesh, kept the law, then went to the cross, was murdered on the cross, and then endured the wrath of Almighty God, the wrath that all of us deserve, the wrath for your sin, the wrath for my sin. He endured all of that so that you and I would not have to. So then how dare we know that? How dare we understand that, that Christ paid for my sin and for the sin of mankind, and then think, I have a reason to boast about my salvation, my Christianity? We come, we gather, we walk, celebrating the Savior, and we're not the Savior. But when, we, but when we think that our morality, that our, our good deeds contribute something, like I said, we, we, we subtract from the cross in its sufficiency. And what we have to understand is that without Christ, there's only condemnation. With Christ, Romans 8 said, no more condemnation. But it was Christ and Christ alone. Ephesians chapter 2. But now, in Christ Jesus, you, and this is your part, who were once far off, have been brought near, how? By the blood of Christ. So what brings us near to Christ? What brings us near to God? Well, if I, well, if I do these th- rules, and I'm a good neighbor, and I serve at my church, and I give, then I'm brought near 
to Christ. That, that's not what that passage says. What brings me near to God is what Christ accomplished on the cross, the blood of Christ. That's what brings me near to God. And that means on my good days, when I'm just killing it, and I look at my performance and I think, man, I just wish every Christian was like me. On those days, it's the blood of Christ that makes me acceptable to God, not my performance. On my bad days where I, God feels so far away because I'm just not performing the way that I should and I'm struggling with the sin over and over again and things seem to be falling apart. On those days, I'm not far from God because I am brought near to God, not based on my good days and my bad days, but based on the blood of Jesus Christ. You think... <coughs> What makes me acceptable to God initially is the gospel, the good news that Jesus Christ paid for my sin. And if I repent of my sin and turn to Jesus, then I'm brought near to God and I'm, I'm accepted by God. But then where we get off track is then we think, that's what got me to Jesus. But now I stay there with good performance and good behavior. So yes, what brought me to Jesus, what brought me to in acceptance with God was the fact that I believed the gospel and put my faith and trust in the shed blood of Jesus Christ and Christ alone. But if I'm going to stay in good standing with God, I need to do these things. I need to keep the rules. I need to, 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 to grow and, and be better this year than I was last year. And that's where we get off track. Because again, that diminishes the cross and it makes it about me. And this whole story is not about you. It's not about <coughs> anything other than what Jesus Christ did on the cross. So we are brought into acceptance with God by the blood of Christ, the finished work of what he did on the cross. And we worship uh, and we, we proclaim that. And then we stay in good standing with God, not based on our performance, not based on our behavior, but what Jesus Christ did on the cross. So a clear mark of someone who believes the gospel is to understand that I, God does not accept me and love or hate me based on my performance or my behavior, but based on what Jesus Christ did on the cross. And when I acknowledge and I understand my own depravity and the sins beneath the sins and the fact that I can, I can identify everybody's sin crystal clear except my own and I <clears throat> remind everybody, I, I have a very low view of myself, a very low view of man, but a very high view of God. Because I recognize that he stepped in and he saved the day, that he's the savior. That this is, you know, despite the fact that usually when somebody says, hey, you're a sinner and you're more sinful than you can imagine, that sounds like a real downer. And it is if that was the end of the story. But the good news is that, that's not where the story ends. That although I'm in this hopeless condition, Christ came in as my hero, as my rescuer, and saved me. And as I stand in front of God, he doesn't look at me based on my good deeds and my bad deeds, but on <clears throat> what Christ did on the cross. And if the rich young ruler would have understood that, he wouldn't have boasted in his performance. He would have boasted because although the rich young ruler was moral and had it together, Jesus was the better 
rich young ruler. Where this rich young ruler failed and said, I'm not selling my deeds, or I'm not selling my possessions to give to the poor. Jesus, who was young in his 30s, was rich, cosmically, owns everything, and a ruler because he runs everything. Jesus was a rich young ruler who was willing to give up his riches for the poor. You and I, who were spiritually poor and destitute. Jesus, who, though he was rich, became poor so that you and I, through his poverty, might become rich. Jesus was willing to, to, to become poor for our sake of God pay for our sin. And I think if the rich young ruler would have understood who he stood before, a better rich young ruler who was on his way to the cross, he wouldn't have boasted in his own performance. He would have boasted in the cross and what Jesus Christ did for him. So we have absolutely this morning no reason to boast other than to boast in the cross. We don't look to the left and the right and say, I'm better than that guy, and I I would never do what they did. We don't have that attitude. We walk in humility, understanding that we have a very low view of of ourselves and our performance based on our condition and a very high view of the Savior, the one who paid our debt, the one who willingly became poor so that you and I could become spiritually rich. And we have this high view of God and a low view of worship. Because this view, this high view of God, this low view of man affects everything. It affects how I deal with people. It it affects how I treat people. And it affects how I worship. Because if I think that I'm something, if I, like Zangief, if I think I'm a bad guy, but not that bad of a guy, then my heart is not going to overflow in worship to the Savior. But when I recognize my condition before God, my hopeless condition, but yet what he did for me by paying the cost for my sin, it changes everything and I make much of him. If you could do me a favor, could you bow your heads and close your eyes? We this morning absolutely need the gospel. When we come to Christ and for the rest of our lives, the gospel need to be believing. And the gospel is the good news of a rich young ruler named Jesus who left his riches and endured poverty, the deepest poverty that one could ever imagine by enduring the wrath of God so that you and I could be forgiven, could be rescued from a hopeless condition on our way to eternal torment to pay for our sins justly and yet he stepped in and saved the day to rescue you and I and if you've never turned to Jesus you've never ceased from trusting in your own performance your own good works your own morality your own behavior I urge you this morning out of love that you would seize and call upon Jesus and say, <coughs> in any words that you choose, articulate, Lord, I know I, I don't deserve eternal life. 
Lord, I know that there is no thing in me that you see that legitimizes my place in heaven. You don't look at my performance and say that I'm worthy of heaven. I acknowledge how unworthy I am. But Lord, I'm, I'm asking you to look past my sin. I'm asking you to forgive my sin based on what Jesus Christ did on the cross and that you would forgive me. I cease from trusting in my own performance and I'm trusting in your performance, what you did on the cross. And call out to him with that attitude. And if you're a Christian this morning, of us are not rebelling against God with, with gross sin this morning, but we're diminishing the cross by thinking we contribute something to our sanctification, to our salvation. And maybe we're diminishing the cross this morning with our, with our insincere worship that we're, that we're satisfied with, with serving God and doing the right things more than we're satisfied with knowing God. So we too need the gospel and we need to turn from that and repent and rejoice in the Savior. Rejoice in the one who paid our debt and believe the gospel deeper. So maybe this morning we, just, we need to throw ourselves on the mercy of God and, and rejoice and worship what he Lord, we thank you for the cross. Lord, we thank you for your payment. Acknowledging this morning that is our only hope, our only boast. Lord, forgive us for diminishing that. Forgive us for our inflated view of ourselves. And we pray that the Spirit of God would so move in our hearts to change our perspectives and our hearts about how we view ourselves and our sin. And Lord, would we understand it? Would we understand how sinful we truly are, but yet how loved we are through the cross? We pray that we'd make much of the Savior, that our lives would pour out in worship for what you did. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.